Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. In today's episode of Sustainability and You, we interview Dr. Rian Marie Thomas, OBE. Rian Marie is CEO of the Green Finance Institute, backed by the UK Government and City of London Corporation. Rian Marie spent 20 years in banking and was awarded an OBE for services to green banking. She is an emeritus member of the TCFD and co chair of TNFD as well as a member of numerous advisory groups and boards across UK government. She began her career at Barclays Investment Bank in 2000, ending as global head of green banking and founder and chair of Barclays Green Banking Council, which developed and launched a suite of green financial products and services. So welcome, Rianne Marie, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Tilly and I are absolutely delighted to have you with us today, particularly since this is the day of the release of the IPCC new report. Um, lots of things to talk to talk about that act as a backdrop to some of our questions of you today. Um, but before we get into some of the meat um, of our questions, we'd love to hear uh, from you about your journey to and leadership role within the Green Finance Institute. Well, Firstly, thanks very much for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. And obviously, it is an important day today with the IPCC report. And that does actually link to your question from my own personal perspective, um, in that I spent 20 years, almost 20 years as a banker, uh, most most of that in investment banking, some of it in corporate finance and then in um, payments. Um, And I'd always been an avid uh, environmentalist in my private life. I just didn't see that the two worlds could coexist, um, which sounds crazy now. But uh, years ago, I didn't realize that I could bring my expertise to bear on this topic that was so important to me personally. But then when the Paris Agreement was signed, so another really remarkable day, um, it occurred to me that, as many other people, um, that if 195 countries were actually going to Um, meet their nationally determined contributions and adhere to their commitments, then that would require over time a complete change in industrial strategy in these countries. And actually, as a banker, there was a huge opportunity there to become the trusted advisor and partner as we saw entire industry sectors and in fact, the whole economy uh, undergoing this big profound change. And at the time, I had a really interesting role. I was at Barclay Card. And we were, you know, a business that was right in the eye of technological disruption. And 
having to see how that business was responding to it and being part of that leadership team. And I just thought we should be doing exactly the same when it comes to climate science and the impacts of climate change. But looking around, I couldn't see within the industry that the same urgency or the same sort of structured and disciplined way of thinking about it was happening. And that obviously has all changed in the last five, six years, which which I'm pleased to report. But that started me on my personal journey of just thinking, this is going to be huge. And as a financier, you know, people like me need to be front and center of this. So that translated into working with colleagues um, at my former employer. It has set up a um, green banking council. We started looking at how we could set up a green bank within the organization, which products we would need to develop. And we did. We developed 11 of them in 12 months, and all of which were very successfully launched, including things like the first green mortgage by High Street Bank, a green bond, one of the first in the UK to be backed by UK assets, one of the first big banks to do green corporate deposit. And so it went on and I just realised that was it. Like, I think most people that get involved in this agenda, they struggle to to step away. Um, I personally wouldn't be able, and I've said this publicly before, I, there's no way I could wake up now and think, how do I use all my energy and expertise and um you know, all my connections to do something that would help us on a trajectory to a four degrees world. And I hope in the the ghastliness of the IPCC report today that a number of other people might have that personal epiphany because we need people from all walks of life, not just financiers, but we need everybody to say, okay, this is an emergency. How do I use my expertise and my platform and what it is I know to contribute towards some of the solutions, because clearly not one of us can actually solve this, but together there is a chance. Well, I mean, I totally concur. It hooks us in, doesn't it, Tilly? And yeah. um, it's wonderful to be able to combine your passion um, with your your day job as well. So I couldn't agree more. And it probably explains why you're so successful in your leadership role and with your team in acting as a catalyst to accelerate collaboration between the public and private sector. Um, you've done a lot around the transport and the built environment um, to date. Um, it would be great to hear from you, perhaps a summary of the initiatives that you and your team have led on um, and those that you feel have had the most impact and, and how you view impact. Clearly, for the last two years, I've left my city career and I now head up the Green Finance Institute, which is a great privilege. And as you say, we're, we're an organisation that led by bankers, um, but we're actually financed by government. So we've got this really interesting position between the policymakers and the city in trying to genuinely look, as you say, sector by sector and and try and figure out what are the blockers? Why are we not seeing the finance, the mainstream finance being invested or being, um, you know, really being mobilized at the pace and scale that we all clearly know it needs to be. And it, it fundamentally, I believe that the city and financial sector are full of really ingenious and creative people who, if incentivized correctly, will come up with the right solutions. And once they realize that these things make money, will do those trades all day. So the fact sometimes that isn't happening suggests there's real blockers in the way. So how do we measure our impact? We measure our impact in a number of different ways. We, As I say, we pull together large coalitions of experts, not just financiers, but 
uh, industrialists, policymakers, academics, uh, civil society experts to look at these issues and actually look end to end at things like decarbonizing our building stock, decarbonizing our road transportation, channeling more capital towards resilient infrastructure in Africa, etc. We also do work, for example, uh, where we bring together experts on how we define a taxonomy for the UK. It's one of our big projects. Um, how do we then operationalize a taxonomy, which has got nothing to do with taxidermy. It's all to do with a, a, a definitive list of what is green and what is on its way to being green and what really isn't green at all um, that can actually be the backbone for finance and investment. But you asked me specifically about impact. And I think we measure it in a number of different ways, obviously on some of our more uh, established programmes like our uh, Coalition on the Energy Efficiency of Buildings, uh, which has been going now since we launched it at COP in Madrid. Some of the KPIs there that we look at, well, for example, we, we now have over 300 members, which um, having large membership wasn't you know, a particular goal, but it does mean that over 70% of the UK mortgage market is now represented as a member of this group. We, we look at 20 different uh, demonstrator projects that we're bringing to market. I'll just mention one, which was in September 2020, we launched a green home finance a set of green home finance principles with the loan market association so responding to concerns that we'd heard from our members and from the market about accusations of greenwashing and um, that it would make it easier to develop innovative green products with a set of actual loan principles since then those principles have supported 11 financial institutions with combined mortgage balances of 480 billion to launch or commit to launch green lending products that support the retrofitting of homes, which that is, it's about trying to really drive that. As you said, it's catalyzing that systemic change amongst the mainstream financial investors. Our late chairman, Sir Roger Gifford, for many, many years was a big advocate for the UK government to issue a green guilt. Um, and we were very pleased to work with the Impact Investing Institute and uh, colleagues over at the LSE to put together proposals that would support the green guilt that was announced last year and fingers crossed will soon be coming to market in the coming weeks and months. And then, for example, the UK Infrastructure Bank, we worked with E3G and a number of other partners around the market to make sure that the UK Infrastructure Bank did have a net zero and resilient mandate at the heart of its activities and we're very pleased when that was announced and then finally i'd like to just mention our green horizon summit platform because one of the things as i said earlier about is the importance of using your platform very literally to get the message out as you're doing as well with your podcast um, and we set up the green horizon summit last year with um, our partners at city of london corporation and the world economic forum i think we had 12 chief executives from mainstream financial organizations speaking at that virtual event, as well as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Prince Charles, Bill Gates, Mike Bloomberg, Christine Lagarde, Christiana Figueres. Uh, so a, an absolute all-star cast. And so it wasn't surprising that we got 330,000 views and 9.8 million Twitter impressions. And that was important because I think 
it is really key that uh, the market sees this is an executive level discussion. This is something that the chief executives of these main organisations are discussing and are giving up their time to speak on a, a webinar because this isn't something that's just confined to sort of small teams of Cassandras anymore. This is something that is being discussed at the board. And we've, I think we've had real cut through in elevating awareness and dialogue on this in the last few years. Now we need to turn all these fantastic commitments, like all the commitments for the Glasgow Financial Alliance on net zero, we need to turn those commitments into short-term targets and we need to turn those targets into actual deals that get done and finance that flows. Um, so I'm really excited about the run-up to COP and what happens post-COP as we actually try and make sure that these commitments turn into action. I think you've provided us with some really granular and fantastic examples there of bringing to life some of the work that the Green Finance Institute does. I think I love the power of the way you describe how people collaborate and what can be achieved when you bring people together and they engage properly and extensively and persuasively coming from those sort of multidisciplinary backgrounds. Having said that, what more do you think the finance sector could or should do? I know you've said before that it can't change things on its own, and that's really clear from what you've said. But given the deep pockets <laughs> that, that, that we have, what more can the finance sector do to, to lead here and that pace? So I think when we discuss the finance sector, we need to expand it beyond just thinking about the mainstream investors and the banks. And we need to include in there all the different sources of capital. So it's the public finance sector and they have a key role to play. The development banks, the different sort of infrastructure banks, government balance sheets, as well as the philanthropic sector, which is obviously, you know, historically hasn't focused as much on climate, but is rapidly catching up. And now we're seeing huge funds being set up just to focus on, on climate. So I think we need to find the right roles for all these different types of capital providers and make sure that they are working together. I get really boring about this, actually, but and I probably will die on a hill somewhere <laughs> shouting about guarantees, not grants. Um, but the, the point is we do have huge walls of ESG aligned money. So a potential green money from the private sector that does now say and is going to need to invest in green because of all these commitments that have been made. But that also does need to meet their own risk return hurdles and uh, the criteria that are set by those investors. And so we need to find ways of using public impact funding. So money from concessionary capital, philanthropic capital, government balance sheet to de-risk these situations so that when we talk about collaboration, we're talking about proper public-private collaboration, which actually at the moment is so important because we've got these compressed balance sheets worldwide in the aftermath of this horrible pandemic. So it shouldn't be the hardest argument in the world to say, let's actually structure your monies so that grant monies are being used where there's absolutely no alternative. But let us not use public finance in any setting where with a little bit more creativity and a little bit more structuring, it could be used to crowd in private finance. 
Yes, it's a bit more complicated. Yes, it takes a bit more structuring and hard work to do it. But this has got to be the way we start thinking about how we bring all aspects of capital and private, private, public and philanthropic capital to the table. We've had a lot of talk, haven't we, about breaking down those barriers and, and innovation within financial instruments and turning on its head traditional financial models. How do we move beyond rhetoric then to actually making that happen? And are there any examples that you can share where you're starting to see that happen? Well, look, I don't want to use this podcast as an advertorial, but um, given that you've kind of kindly given me the, that segue, <laughs> um, I, I would love to talk about one of the projects that we're working on, if I may, which is a green finance guarantee fund. We've been working on it for a while with one of my colleagues, Jeremy Gorelick, that sits in Cape Town um, in South Africa. And it again goes to this point I made earlier about genuinely believing that the the market and the finance sector is full of of smart people that can come up with creative solutions so it i didn't quite understand why blended finance which has been a solution that's been around for you know a number of years wasn't really seeing the impact that it should and by that i mean you know you see the oecd numbers saying that we need four trillion dollars a year going into um, emerging and developing markets uh, to support climate smart infrastructure and the the actual flows are more like 60 to 80 billion dollars a year so clearly if we've got the structure and the solution that that i'm struggling why we have that big investment gap so we started speaking to financiers in south africa and we actually learned some really interesting well at least i thought quite innovative and breaking news which was they said, look, we don't need you setting up these um, blended finance solutions so that we get a lot of you know, Western money actually coming into our market and skewing prices. What we actually need is the ability to mobilize the domestic capital that we have in our own country. So the big pension funds, the big institutional investors that we have onshore, but who are, for very smart reasons, only allowed to invest in investment grade transactions and a lot of these this infrastructure especially green infrastructure which is quite often unproven doesn't meet those criteria so what we actually need you to do is come up with some kind of credit enhancement mechanism like a guarantee that as underwriting banks we would then be confident underwriting these big infrastructure and project finance transactions knowing that we could then distribute that paper amongst our own domestic pools of capital I was like, well, clearly somebody must be doing that already. I mean, this can't be a new idea. And it turns out it's not a new idea. And there are lots of different guarantee organizations. But unfortunately, very few of them are focused on green finance or green infrastructure. And also, quite often, these can be quite difficult to draw down. It can take a number of months. We heard about one fund, it takes 18 months to actually draw down. And I know from my own deal doing days, there's no deal on earth that will take you that long. So you've, a commercial transaction, will take, even a structured one, is going to take you only two to three months. So you can't go through your own credit committee with a promise, a vague promise that in 18 months' time a guarantee might come along. So we needed to align those two timescales. So we started work on how we could structure a facility like that um, that would really bring a lot of leverage to you know, Western finance that could then be drawn down by the South African banks. And this bizarre thing started happening in that because we were speaking to so many people in the South African market about how to 
structure this facility, people started calling us up saying, when's your, when's your facility coming? Here's a deal we'd like to do. And we ended up inadvertently discovering a pipeline of over a billion dollars worth of climate smart infrastructure that the banks were interested in financing, but couldn't quite get the terms to work. Now, I haven't done the due diligence on all those projects yet. So, but even if a fraction, even if only half of them are something you'd want to take forward, that's still a really important and impactful pipeline. Mm. Um, So, and then something else started happening, which is some other organizations, notably FSD Africa, that's um, actually a UK government backed organization in Nairobi. They got in touch and said, we hear you're doing interesting things in South Africa. Would you like to look at other African countries where that might also have similar supply demand dynamics and have similar pools of onshore capital? So we started doing the work in Kenya, Rwanda, Ghana, and we're actually hoping to expand beyond Africa and look at would this guarantee structure work in India? So we have, and there's absolutely no reason why it couldn't work in Latin America and some other Asian countries as well. It's not a panacea and it doesn't work in some of the most vulnerable countries. You obviously need some depth of capital markets within the the country that you're you're looking at. So it's not the solution to everything, but it certainly could be the solution to some countries. And again, goes to the point of, well, if there is a leverageable private sector solution in some countries, that means that some of the more vulnerable countries, you're freeing up that grant money to be redeployed. And I guess gives you a kind of insight into how those kind of things can work, at least like it sort of gives you an in um, into how these kind of innovative strategies can be can be realized and put together isn't that a, the point that it's innovation isn't it around traditional financial models and way of the ways of marrying the capital with bankable projects and you've just articulated very well there how you're bridging that gap i mean it strikes me that when we we look outside of uk waters and we think about the developing economies more widely that pulling in capital and attracting capital has been one of the the big hurdles. And we know that there's been a lot of criticism of the slow pace at which the much promised 100 billion in 2015 uh, is moving towards developing economies. And it was a bit disappointing that the G7 didn't make a little bit more of a a splash uh, around that. What is it, do you think, in terms of traditional financial thinking, is is creating blockers you know is it lack of familiarity with the asset class because we know that the 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 capital is there is it the deal deal size they're too small for a lot of these big funds financial complexity you've talked about building new frameworks for the allocation of capital um, or or simply the skill sets and understanding of green projects and and returns and wider impact just sort of simply not there I'm trying to get behind or unlock some of these uncertainties I think it's a mixture of all of the above and they are different in different sectors Mm -hmm. unfortunately I think the reality is we're going to have to do some really tough granular possibly quite tedious work going sector by sector situation by situation to figure out what those blockers are and how you unlock them. And I know that there's a school of thought that, you know, we can't solve this project by project. And that's absolutely right. But it's only by looking at these blockers and what what's stopping projects getting financed 
that's really invaluable in helping us think about what policy and regulatory changes we need. So it's, I fully agree, it's the politics, not the projects that's needed for the systemic change, but the politics needs to be informed by the projects. So I think it's, I, I genuinely think it's all of the points you made, but they, they'll be different for different scenarios. So if we're looking at, I mean, one of the things, obviously we do a lot of work domestically, but if we do start looking at some of the things that really concerns me, we're looking at, you know, 54 countries across Africa that are only accounting for two to three percent of global emissions, but where, you know, you've got hundreds of millions of people who don't have access to electricity. And the idea that African countries must stay poor for the future of the planet is a pretty unconscionable strategy. So we need to find a way of leapfrogging Renew, you know, to renewable energy in those countries and find a way of financing that. And that's, the second you say those words, it immediately brings into all sorts of perceived risk and, you know, currency issues and lack of familiarity, a lack of, you can see why that all of a sudden becomes very complex mm. and why if you're incentivized, I think as we all have been at some point in our careers, just to meet our short-term targets, it's far more, it's far more, it makes sense that people continue to do what's familiar until the regulations tell them they can't do that anymore. You think there's also a kind of reluctance to step into something which seems to be such a, a void risk-wise and insurance-wise because, you know, that there's a reason why um, things like major flooding and drought in Western affluent countries are more likely to be insured and more easily insured than, for example, in Bangladesh or um, African countries where it seems like almost you open Pandora's box. And I this was slightly sort of um, devil's advocate thing to say, uh, but I just I wonder if there's a kind of complacency piece. I, I hear what you're saying. I don't think it's a complacency. I just think it's the way the incentives and in the system is built at the moment. It's okay. if you if you have to meet certain risk return hurdles, there are ways of doing that that is more complicated or there are ways of doing that based on familiar models and familiar yeah. ways of doing business. And I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, this is all to do with people and yeah. them making making their choices that they do every day to, on how they how they go about doing their business. It's making the unfamiliar more familiar. It's helping de-risk these situations. It's help, It's smarter use of capital so that we can catalyze these situations because we know we have to do this. And if the IPCC report is telling us anything today, it's, you know, the, the time for debate is over. We now actually do need to get onto an absolute action station's footing. Yeah, and the IPCC report also interestingly talks about in ethical terms the obligation to accelerate this movement of capital to uh, developing countries so I mean the evidence is clear the the impetus is clear so um, and I think the message is clear from you the, the the financial innovation we need to to accelerate that well we're on the way but we'd like to see it happen a bit faster Let's move maybe to some opportunity that this presents us with. Obviously, we've talked about methodologies to de-risk investments, but how do we incentivize new investment into new technologies and solutions and innovation that, that will help accelerate the change? We see a lot of that coming out of universities, 
some entrepreneurial spirit there certainly taking hold and the Grantham Institute amongst others are, are, are leaders what more do you think we can do and what more would you like to see again I think this comes back to horses for courses when it comes to financial risk appetite. So those ideas that are coming out of universities and are coming out of boutique organisations and fantastic technological innovation, that needs to appeal to grant funders, venture cap, early stage angel investors. Um, The number of people I remember in my former role, people would come and try and speak to the debt teams about these types of early stage investment. You're like, no, no, that's not their role. Um, so it's it's actually making that stuff more accessible, easier. I think it's making sure that people with smart new ideas understand a little bit more about finance and where the appropriate pools of finance are, and we need to make that easier for them. I also think that support for some of these early stage innovative technologies could be sponsored by larger the large incumbent industries i think that would be that would be a really positive step forward i know that some of that is happening already but some of these large legacy industries are going to have to pivot their business models and so there's a real opportunity there for them to get involved in seeing what these early stage technologies look like and that gives more confidence to the financial community as well to invest I think the tax system, couldn't it, could play a really valuable role here in terms of having aligned tax policy with some of these clearly stated political objectives to uh, encourage uh, innovation. So perhaps there's a marrying there of, you know, incentivization and, you know, finance and, and, and innovation in a more meaningful a more meaningful way. I do think carbon taxes could be part of the solution. I agree. They need to be structured in such a way that they actually encourage innovation amongst large industry um, and rather than um, suppress it. And the other thing is we need to make sure that those taxes are redistributed equitably so that we actually are bringing consumers and effectively the electorate with us. So examples are, you know, people that are living in fuel poverty making sure that some of this carbon tax is invested in in their homes and improving their access to energy efficient housing, for example. Um, So I'd like to ask you, Rianne-Marie, about um, the diversity and inclusion piece. Um, It it feels to me, certainly my perception, that there aren't enough women in this space. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and perhaps a little bit about your experience in, in that regard. Tony, that's a great question. And it saddens me a bit that that's a perception out there that there aren't fantastic women that are contributing to this agenda, because certainly my lived experiences, I am surrounded by really genuinely inspiring women who are working hard and are leading the way on this. But um, I guess your question and your perception raises the raises the prospect that maybe they're not getting the coverage or the media attention that they deserve because i mean gosh and this is probably a dangerous thing to do but if we if we just think through the different aspects and the, the different roles and stakeholders that will make cop26 a success for example obviously on the policy side you have Anne-Marie Trevelyan and now we have Allegra Stratton with it with a key role as well and but let's not forget the key role that was played by former minister Claire Perry O'Neill in securing the UK's role as COP26 host in the first place. And it was former 
Prime Minister Theresa May, who led the G7 in legislating for net zero. And clearly she would have been supported by a number of very hardworking officials, but that certainly included the ever impressive Anuka Dada, who's been working on this agenda for many years. I mean, and when we think about the the COP, which is obviously a, a focus and a catalyst for so much work that is happening at the moment, you know, one of the greatest sort of iconic figures is uh, Christiana Figueres herself. But then bringing it back to my world in finance, you've got NatWest, which is one of the leading sponsors of COP, making really ambitious commitments under their leader, Alison Rose. You've got Amanda Blanc at Aviva, again, a real leader on this agenda, as well as Shamara at Macquarie, taking a leading position in the banking world. In financial regulation, we've got Sarah Breeden at the Bank of England, Sylvie Goulard at the Bank de France. In the COP champions team, you've got Meriam Omi and Sagarika Chatterjee, both really leading on the transition work and you know the, the net zero work and what we'll be we'll all be working on post-COP. And then when I think about some of the really important initiatives that are being led from the UK, you've got Faith Ward and Stephanie Pfeiffer chairing important investor initiatives, Dame Clara First chairing the UK's voluntary carbon markets efforts. Rachel Kite is chairing the Voluntary Carbon Market Integrity Initiative. We've got Ingrid Holmes chairing the UK's Green Taxonomy work. I'm very fortunate to work with Elizabeth Morema, who's co-chairing the TNFD. Let's not forget Mary Shapiro at the TCFD. And then you've got Emma Howard Boyd. How could we not mention Emma Howard Boyd chairing the Environment Agency? And obviously, I'm delighted to say she's now the chair at the Green Finance Institute. And yes, I wish I really hadn't started this now because there are women leading on the climate <laughs> finance um, and the climate science like Emily Schuckberg at Cambridge. And in civil society, we've got Catherine Howarth at Share Action, Tanya Steele at WWF. And increasingly, when we look at the role of philanthropy and climate philanthropy in this, in trying to crowd in private finance, you look at Kate Hampton's Children's Investment Fund, Leslie Johnston and Kelly Clark at Laudis, Cressida Pollock and Bryony Worthington at Quadrature. And then if you look at some of the trade bodies, we've got Emma Pinchback, who's the CEO at Energy UK. And yes, I really do wish I hadn't started this now, because I'm also <laughs> thinking of my friend Nina Skorupska. But look, the point I'm making is there are really impressive women out there who are have are really leading the way on a, on a lot of this. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten Julie badly. Yeah, we've really got to stop this now. You've got to stop. <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested then because it, it's so enlightening to hear you just list off such, such an extensive list of amazing women in very high influential positions. But what, what do you think is then the disconnect? Why is that not known? Why is it my perception and the perception of so many that we don't have women in those positions? I guess there's a question of media presence. I guess maybe that's something that we should look into. I think somebody told me about who we follow on Twitter and that actually we're not following enough female thought leaders on Twitter. And I thought that was a really interesting piece of uh, research um, that had been commissioned recently. And I guess as women, are we doing as much as we could do to champion other women? Uh, Josephine obviously you the two of you have got this podcast and you're giving voice to people like me so thank you very much but there's an opportunity for us to be doing even more yeah I mean it's definitely food for thought isn't it and 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 no easy answers points for reflection but I love the idea that we could champion each 
other more and 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 put that call to action um out to sort of our audience and others it is an interesting point isn't it what you're saying about the twitter thing actually because the, what that research effectively came out with was that women are championing men more than women isn't it so there's sort of on Twitter, men are being championed by both genders. And actually, it's really interesting because as a woman, I feel like I'm constantly looking to lift other women up because that's sort of the that's the journey that society is taking. I mean, it's, it feels slow sometimes, but that is the way that we're sort of trying to go. And yet you see pieces of research like that and the, you know, the the disconnect between my perception of women or lack thereof in in positions of seniority particularly in this space and then the extensive lists that you laid off so it's it's really interesting and slightly frightening research actually extensive list but certainly not comprehensive so yeah. hoping there are other women out there who will give me a shout after this podcast and <laughs> yeah. say how dare you have forget me on your on your speech so apologies well, to those yeah. well it, it's all, it, it prompts us to be a part of the solution Rianne Marie because then we can given that extensive list but not comprehensive <laughs> uh, we can invite some people onto the podcast to share their views as well Thank you so much, Riemarie, for your time today. Um, thank you for your insights. Thank you for your leadership of the Green Finance Institute. It's been an absolute pleasure. Bye bye. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. 